1: Well, hey friends, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm so glad you're here today. As always, if you're a first-time guest, special welcome to you. My guest today is Rena Shaw. Rena is one of those people who you immediately feel like you're friends with the moment that you meet. We just kind of hit it off, started talking like old friends, and that's how it's been every single time we've chatted, including today. She's an incredible leader paving the way for women in politics and entrepreneurship. She runs her own consulting business and can be seen on places like MSNBC, Fox, and more. Rena is passionate about getting more women involved in politics through the Women's Public Leadership Network and specifically about helping to diversify the Republican Party, a place she hasn't felt exactly 100% comfortable with in the past couple of years. We get into that a little bit. Last but not least, she's a mom to two very little people and has found ways to make that mom hustle work for her. I love talking with her today and could have done so for much longer. Enjoy my conversation with Rena Shaw. Well, hey, Rena, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I'm so excited, Erica. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. (laughs) I know. Like ever since we met, I don't know, last year at some point, I was like, I've, you know, I think she's a good person to have on the list because you're such a fun person to talk to. You have such a great, um, you know, wealth of experience with your professional life, but also you're a mom and you just seem kind of like a fun loving person. So I was like, I've got to get her on here. (laughs)
0: thank you for those really kind words of course um well
1: speaking of your resume you do have one that a lot of people would kill for (laughs) I was reading it just yesterday and I was like man this girl has done a lot of stuff but before we dig into some of those amazing kind of career credentials I would love to hear about your background where you grew up what your family was like and um and then we'll dig into some of the some of the other stuff
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think what I sent you um, regarding, you know, just really what I'm about nowadays, what I've got, what I'm involved in, what I've got my hands in. um, It's really, you know, all this is fun for me. I think work should be fun. I took on that mentality a number of years ago. And I think that was much to my parents' chagrin (laughs) because I was always a bit of a wild child. And I grew up in Southern West Virginia And my parents are both from uh, different countries. And my dad was born and raised in Uganda, even though ancestrally we are from India. Uh, His family, they were immigrants there in the 1800s. And so that was a really unique story. And then my mom was from India and immigrated to the U.S. in 1980 after meeting my dad. Uh, But my dad had been here in the U.S. since 72. He was a general surgeon. And unfortunately, I just lost my dad last year, Mm -hmm. um, which was Tough. I think a lot of women, you know, when you lose a parent, you start to feel like, wow, you know, what what is my role in the world? And and for me, now that I am a parent, it's particularly different. Um, so I I look back at my upbringing, I look at the way my parents raised me, where I come from. I find myself reflecting on that all the time these days, because being a mom to a three and a half year old and a one year old, as as you know, is difficult. It's constantly changing. Just when you think you have things down as a working mom, or even as a stay at home mom, kids are constantly changing things on us. (laughs) And so I, I find myself almost looking to my past as well, um, as a source of comfort. And so my, my, where I'm from, my origin story is just really important to me now. Also because of the work I've chosen to do, I'm m- many things. I'm multi-hyphenated. Yeah. I'm political strategist. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I, I love to talk about my time on Capitol Hill. And and more recently, I found myself leading a nonprofit. And so these are all things I'm incredibly proud to do. I'm privileged to do because of the great upbringing my parents gave me. I realize I'm just so fortunate to have had two parents with terminal degrees. Uh, my mother was a lawyer in India and my father was a general surgeon, as I mentioned. And um, they both just worked incredibly, incredibly hard every day. They made it seem like, you know, life was to be enjoyed, but that everything we had was a blessing from God and also because of their own hard work. And I, I really carry that with me today. I take it so much to heart and I'm hoping to pass these things on to my kids with my husband.
1: Well, it sounds like you did have a really close relationship with your dad. And, you know, you mentioned learning something or, you know, just really getting a new kind of perspective when he passed away. What what are some of the things maybe that you incorporated as a parent or that you really picked up when that
0: happened? You know, my my work in politics now is entirely attributed to my dad, and I don't want to discount my mom's role in my life. She was incredible, but in a very different way. Um, and I think that's the beauty of relationships, right? Is that as parents, you kind of choose to do things with your children. You're, I think, now in our modern marriages, we're we're very much sometimes seeking to be in unison with one another. But my parents were just very different people. They weren't. Um, they didn't have an arranged marriage, but they had a very interesting uh, marriage. In that, my dad was already in the U.S. when he was a young a young boy growing up in uganda he read so many of the classics. He read Dostoevsky. I remember he introduced me to Dostoevsky and he used to talk to me about America because as a boy, when he was growing up, America was this concept. It wasn't this, this nation or this land so much as it was this beautiful concept where people of various backgrounds came together and blended very perfectly in a very free and open and just society. And so, um, dad very much loved America. And and when he came over in 72 to do his surgical residency at Duke university um, he he had nobody here in the US except for his sister and her and her husband and he came over after our family lost everything in Uganda due to a dictator hmm. Named Idi Amin. And so the rest of dad's family, he had seven sisters and many cousins and uncles because he was raised in a joint family in Uganda. They were all political refugees to the UK. And so when he was in North Carolina, every dollar mattered because I think he had something like 80 bucks in his bank account. And he just knew he had to, he had a certain responsibility. But along with this idea and this beautiful love for country, um, he knew that he could be a good citizen by being civil. Civically involved. And I think he really took that to heart and did things in many ways that um, I just think left a lasting impression with me um, over and over and over through every chapter of my life. He was showing me what it was like to be civically involved and to, you know, give back to your country, to give back to your community, to love your country and community. And so that's what I'm really trying to pass on to my kids. And and mom did it similarly too. Um, But she was just different. Her her Idea and concept of America was very different. She actually never saw herself leaving India, and she and my dad sort of met and married in seven days when he would happen to be back in India visiting some family. And so um, they were introduced and suggested that they might work out, and they did. And so they met and married in seven days, like I said. And and the rest was sort of history. But that that really beautiful story is something I'm I'm hoping we can keep alive in future generations. Is is that you know life can be something that is. Um, um, without stress, even though you're you're going to a new land, you're going to a new uh, sort of entirely different society. You don't have to carry with you um, all these sort of uh, really, I guess, bad emotions that we now, a lot of us get at a young age you know fear and despair all those things you can approach these situations with love and openness and that's just something my folks have passed on to me not even in words just through their actions
1: well you can see how much that civic duty has been passed on by all the work that you do um including running uh multiple um you've been pr- part of multiple organizations that are kind of yeah. dedicated to getting people into civic leadership specifically women um you know, I would love to talk with you about that. Now tell me a little bit about your organization and then, um, why you're so big on women specifically becoming political leaders.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I know I just told you a lot about my family, but it really goes back to that. I mentioned my dad was the only son among seven sisters. So I think it started there, you know, yeah. really just believing that women were equal there was no difference between men and women because that's how my aunts were raised with my dad. And my dad just sort of, really, I don't know, he just hammered it home at every point in his life that there was no difference between me and my brother and that anything I wanted, I could get. And my mother did the same. She to become a lawyer in India in the seventies was no joke. And, um, and I think she did it with this mentality that anything could be hers if she did the work. And when I see sort of the levels of women's political engagement, it's, it's hard to reconcile kind of like, the the mentality I grew up with with how I operate now because there's always an excuse. Every time somebody says, Rena, why don't you run? I'm like, Well, I've got two kids now. I've got a career. I I love the I love making money. I know that sounds really <laughs> crazy. But um, you know, when you get to a certain age, I met my husband when I was 29. I've been used to making money on my own for a very long time. And to give that up um, was just hard for me and, and i knew that entering pu- the the public sphere comes with tremendous costs and trade-offs and and those are things we we choose to do every day as women um, but i also believe that our country is not well served by the levels of of women that we have at all levels whether it's at the local state or federal so we could be better served if we had more voices more diverse voices and those are particularly women, women who are childless by choice, women who've struggled with, you know, conceiving and, and the women who are mothers today. I mean, we are all women, the pillar of society. And I think, um, I just, I really, really believe we need to be in more elected office and more political appointments, despite all that we have, especially as conservative women, um, at home. And so, I'm just really dedicated to that, and Women's Public Leadership Network is my organization that I started with two other women, Cameron Kilberg and Larissa Martinez. We came together at the end of 2017, and at, at that time, the two of them were acquaintances of mine, and I just said, listen, ladies, I know where the both of you are on the political spectrum, but I have this feeling that the current occupant of the Oval Office is somebody that can divide us because he's got such a problem with women, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I really feared that more women who are Republicans would start to want to disassociate with him. And I thought that would mean that that they would either, you know, choose to click independent instead of Republican or just choose to participate politically less. Mm -hmm. And that to me was the bigger problem because I think our society, civic engagement is so important from everyone, from all stripes. So what we're we're looking to do, Women's Public Leadership Network, now we are in our second year, we are really looking to be that one-stop shop, that one resource It's educational and training um, for independently-minded women who want to run or want to be in political appointments or just simply engage further in our nation's political process. We want to be a network that consists of women who are interested in ideas. And those ideas should encourage economic growth, entrepreneurship, and creative policy solutions. So we're building this network across the country. We're, we're going down at the state level. We're building the binders full of women. We don't think that's a bad <laughs> phrase. We think it's a great phrase. And we're essentially reclaiming those binders. We're putting those in our hands so that they're out of the hands of traditionally older male gatekeepers. And I think um, we are going to be building this network to combat this problem. And, and, and we're we're going to get there. We're new. Yes, I understand that, you know, when when it's a new effort, you can't have these sort of lofty ambitions, but we're doing things that we think are going to move the needle by partnering with other organizations that are like-minded. We've already put ourselves um, kind of on a national stage by joining this coalition called Reflect Us, and its tagline is called and it, its tagline is more women, stronger democracy. And and are a coalition of all the women's political empowerment groups that are working to just get more American women into elected office at all levels and across the nation, and most importantly, across the ideological spectrum.
1: Um, Yeah, I have always wondered why people were so offended by that binders full of women phrase. So I (laughs) love that you're taking it back as a positive thing. (laughs) Um, And so you're, you guys are not, are you, you're not looking for anyone from any particular party. You're just saying we want people to rise up and participate regardless
0: of partisan affiliation? Yeah. You know, we chose to become a 501c3 by tax status in order to be nonpartisan, in order to be something that had very open doors. Because when I came together with Cameron and Larissa, the biggest thing was, what are we going to do when women say, I'm not so sure, when they're when they're mm-hmm. afraid to stand up in public and call themselves something, to put a label on themselves, right? So in being nonpartisan, what we felt we could do is really get past that, get past the label and just say, come to us. And so if there's a woman that is sort of fiscally conservative, but socially liberal, we hope she'll find her place with us. If there is a woman that is both, you know, socially um, conservative and fiscally conservative, she'll find her place with us. We want to be something not for everyone, because we understand that sort of will limit us, number Mm -hmm, one, but we want to be a place where people feel like they can get everything they need to know most importantly. And then they can walk away with saying, you know what? I know about the process and I've been exposed to these ideas. I've been exposed to how to talk about what's important to me in these subject areas. I've been given an opportunity to network with women who've sort of been there, done that. And from that, we believe a woman will go on and do whatever she will. You know, So Mm -hmm. if she chooses to be somebody that's in lockstep with the White House right now, we don't... We don't really care. I know that sounds kind of funny to say, but that's why we believe in women because we believe that when women are given the information, they go on and make great decisions Mm -hmm. because we want that full picture. (laughs) Now,
1: I know, and we'll get into this a little more, but, you know, anyone that knows you knows that you're not a fan of the president. and Correct. Um, you've been, <laughs> been outspoken, outspoken on that on MSNBC <laughs> and a variety of other places, and you actually worked for the independent candidate in 2016, Evan McMullen. Um, but what do you think? I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this. Um, we have seen president Trump actually appoint a lot of women to high power positions. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a positive thing that you could say about what he's done?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think we should applaud the president when he's doing something right. You know, there's, there's no need to hold that much animosity in our heart for anyone. My dad always used to say that, you know, never hate so much, someone so much that it consumes you.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: that's just so important when you're in politics, because everything comes with passion. These are your ideas. These are your values. And so when you don't like the other side, or you don't like an opponent, or you don't like a person that says they're a member of your party, and, and it takes, you know, sort of in my, in, in my opinion, the president has taken over. He sort of hijacked the Republican. Party mm-hmm. for his own gain. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that's my view. And I understand that there are a lot of people that don't feel that way. And that's okay. They're allowed to feel that way too. But what he's done with women in putting them in positions of power, whether they be in his cabinet or in other roles across agencies, I think that's a good thing. We can celebrate that. We can celebrate when this administration gets it right. And we can really, really speak out when they don't get it right and we mm-hmm. feel they're doing something wrong. And that's the beauty of America. I think we have to keep it that simple because yeah. if we get in the weeds, you know, it just, we find ways to, to fight.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I, you know, I've been happy with seeing that move. Um, but that also leads me to the question of, um, you obviously are aware of this, but that there aren't a lot of Republican women that were elected in the last election. It was, it was a lot of women, but it was a lot of Democrat women. And, yeah. it, you know, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik has, uh, really <laughs> capitalized on that idea of, um, we need to get more conservative women elected and running and are you are you in talk, talks with her at all? And what are you thinking about how things are going now? Are things looking up on that end of things?
0: Yeah, things are certainly looking up, especially when somebody of Elise Stefanik's um background takes us on. I mean, she look at look at all that she represents, right? She's almost perfect for us younger women mm-hmm. to look to as a role model because She doesn't march lockstep with anyone. I don't think anybody could say that about her. And I Mm -hmm. I love that about her. I think she's independently minded. I think she speaks out when she sees something going wrong. And personally, that's what the Congress should do. That's what members of Congress, that's their duty to do. They're they're not there to answer to anyone but their constituents. And I, I love that about Elise Defanek. And I think she's also troubled that there are so few people on Capitol Hill coming with the the Republican tag that look like her, that sound like her, that that feel like her. And I think sitting here in this moment, you know, now November 2018 is, was so many months away for people like, like me in politics, it feels like many moons away. Mm -hmm. Um, I just remember feeling happy that so many women were elected, um, but feeling so very sad as to why there weren't more Republican women, because this is going to be very difficult to change. It comes with ideology why more conservative women don't run. It is because we we tend to to take care of everything at home first, go get that degree, take care of, you know, a husband that needs some backup, take care of the children, take care of an aging parent. Where does most of it fall? For conservative women, I'm not saying this doesn't happen for women on the other side of the aisle. I'm saying that for conservative women, home comes first. Family always comes first. And because it is at the very core of everything we believe. And so it's again, this is not to villainize the other side, but more liberal women are more likely to say, you know what, I can do it all. I can I can manage this, uh, whatever duties I have to my home or to myself while also going after something in the public sphere. Conservative women tend to believe that we finish all that first and then enter the public sphere. So that's one major roadblock. And we can't sort of, you know, act like that hasn't happened and act like it doesn't exist in today's society. That's just part of being somebody that believes in a lot of the stuff that conservative women do. We believe that we need to strengthen the American family first, that a lot of it starts from home, that we don't need to look at government or outside assistance to help us. And so, I think if we're going to be honest in this conversation, um, the step that. And Stefanik has taken in in turning her leadership pack into uh, something that's going to give to women, um, you know, in 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 races across the country that are right leaning uh, women who you know need help to get past their primary. I think this is a novel first step, but it's definitely not enough. We're we're engaged with her, my organization, my co-founders, many women. uh, We we have had great conversations with her. I think she's a true leader, and I think. I wish we had more members sort of take the step that she's taken and turn their leadership packs into the same. But she started the conversation. And I think we should just applaud that. We should see what she does. I think she'll continue to beat the drum. I think she'll continue to try to find um, allies in males as well. That's something my organization believes. We believe that men can help us in this. And we don't believe in in sort of saying, we are women here or leave us alone. You know, This Mm -hmm. is like we need men and women at the table. And the more male allies you have saying that this is important, the more you'll see Congresswoman Stefanik's, you know, have you'll, you'll see her, her effort have success and you'll see more women like her come up. Um, I just have a really unique situation though, Erica. In twenty seventeen I was I was on the leadership of Right Now Women PAC. It's a political action committee for those of our listeners. Again, I keep saying PAC, and I realize there are people, you know, who aren't in Washington who, <laughs> yes. who aren't, you know, familiar with our, our terminology all the time. But right now Women PAC has been around for many years and it's been an incredible group of women. Where I believe um, I made some some great intergenerational relationships as well, and I was on the board of directors as a director of candidate engagement and recruitment, and so to that end, in 2017. I pretty much got to meet and sit down with or have a phone conversation with with every Republican woman who ran across the country. Mm. It was so unique. And so that's why November 2018 was harder for me because I know how many women didn't Mm -hmm. make it out of their primaries. That's another part of this very quote-unquote honest conversation we need to foster Um, across all circles you know across all conservative women's groups everybody needs to be open about the fact that there are republican women who stepped up to run who couldn't make it out of their primaries because of ideology the nrcc and other groups other vehicles have not helped women In particular, because we don't believe in saying help a woman simply because she's a woman. We want the most qualified. We want the best. We want the person that's just going to be the best representative, right? So this is a a series of you know problems layered on each other. And I think if we try to go at it piecemeal, it's not going to work. So my group is hoping to be part of this sort of um, you know a mirad of of Groups coming together, saying, "Let's find creative ways to deal." I know it was a long-winded answer. No, that's but okay. It's a complex answer. It, no, it's a complex it's problem.
1: <laughs> no, it's very interesting. I mean, how much do you think? Okay, so we know that in 2018, there were some good, there were some victories. So, for example, there was K- Carol, Mil- Carol Miller out of West Virginia. Yeah. I'm sure you know My her district. My um, district. Yeah, right. I was going to say West Virginia, and then we had. Um, Oh, Tennessee. Who became the senator? Marsha Blackburn.
0: Marsha Blackburn. Um, was that was a big deal.
1: A First female Republican or for- female senator ever of Tennessee. Um, so we had some victories, but you didn't see any of that reflected in the media. Of course, we have Alexandria Ocasio Cortez um, and Ilhan Omar on the cover of everything. And, um, you know, they are basically put on a pedestal as this, you know, you know, they were, I mean, it was a victory, no, no doubt. However, yeah. you weren't seeing that across the board. And, and do you think that media kind of biased coverage in any way does uh, dis, uh, discourage people or women specifically on the conservative side from making
0: that leap to run? Yeah, definitely. Because you know, that, and that's just my short answer. But, you know, I, I frequently get mistaken for a member of the media and, and particularly mm-hmm. on Twitter where I get a lot of, you know, h- comments that are filled with with passion and sometimes with hate, which I I obviously don't love. Some of my friends say, never read the comments. And I'm like, I won't learn anything (laughs) about how to get better, what other people are thinking if I don't at least scan the comments after I appear on air or after I've tweeted something. Um, Now, of course, since I haven't been working on a campaign since 2016, I've I've been a little less active on Twitter, but I do still continue to appear at MSNBC, on PBS, um, mainly internationally. I'm on Al Jazeera. And that's been an interesting very, very interesting engagement for me to appear internationally multiple times a week on Al Jazeera, Arabic and English and, and get the take of people from abroad who, how they see us and what you are policies. What do people they see? really watch America?
1: What do you hear oh, do most? They see all them? kinds of things.
0: And, and the, they're engaged and they know so much. I feel like international audiences sometimes I feel like they know more than average Americans because they're watching us. They they're, they're, they're they they know the intricacies of policy. They they know stuff that's being passed in our, you know, House of Representatives today. And I think in general people feel Right now, what I, I tend to get a lot of is America is losing its place in the world. And I I sort of always push back because I'm like, the American spirit is indestructible. I really believe that with my whole heart. I do believe that what we are founded upon, our values, the the very core pillars of what this nation uh, was formed upon, uh, will will not die. It, they can't just die out. I think there are, there's still a great deal of jealousy across the world for what we have here, the freedom and the liberty that our citizens enjoy, the people who live in this land, when they come here, the great benefit of being an American. I think there's a lot of envy for that. But mm-hmm. then there's also, like I said, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of people saying America doesn't get it right. This is wrong. And what I hear is a lot of, of hate for Republicans um, from abroad as well. I do get a lot of love too, though. Don't get me wrong. I get a lot of people saying, you know, if Republicans did things this way, or, oh, the Republicans took a good step on this, you know, the core, people get that. People Like that. But there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of partisan bickering and engagement from abroad as well. And so taking these platforms, hearing from people from across the world, across the country, I sit down and I sort of stew on one thing. I I think, you know, what's very important for us is to talk about how we move the needle every day for average, everyday Americans, because we owe it to them. We owe it to our fellow citizens before we become philanthropic abroad. And I know that that philanthropy is sort of woven into the American spirit and we're the most charitable nation in the world, but there are people here suffering every day. And I don't think government is always the solution, but I do think there are ways that we can talk about crafting more solutions that really bring together public and private groups Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that we can have policies and solutions that sort of work for everyone. Um, But I I think we're just in such a moment of partisan bickering that I worry about that a lot. Let me ask
1: you this. Um, What makes you a conservative?
0: Why are you a conservative? Yeah, it just goes back to the family story entirely. I mean, we've seen what big government can do. We can, we've seen what happens when there's a leader who's in power, who's dictatorial in nature. I mean, he called for the genocide of all non-blacks in Uganda. That's what my family escaped. Mm. My grandfather actually was taken to a camp and beaten, and was only, ta- uh, was only allowed to leave because my uncle, my my eldest aunt's husband, was a CPA for Idi Amin. Somebody he was somehow involved in his team's accounting, and when they found out my grandfather was, you know his father in law, they let him go. Otherwise my grandfather would have been one of the many that was was beaten and killed. And what they used to do was they used to kill people. I mean they used to they there was a great jealousy for the Indian immigrants who came to Uganda and and were were prosperous, were economically successful. They used to take men and they used to kill them. And on the next morning, they used to deliver their clothes on the doorsteps and their wives would just see the clothes and know that they were deceased. And that that's what my family lived through. And I, I just know that government can get too big, can get too oppressive, mm-hmm. can intrude into the lives of citizens and ruin them. And therefore, we... Can, you know, we are very much in danger of not living in a free and just society, an open society, when leaders become too powerful, and government can enable that. So, uh, truly, that's where my value system was formed. It's just part of the family story, and and I I don't believe in complete deregulation. I'm I'm now in my you know thirties, a lot more socially liberal than I expected to be. Um, but then again, you know, I always try to understand where my conservative colleagues are coming from, what it's rooted in, what they believe in. And I do that for my liberal friends as well. You know, where, where was your value system sort of formed? Why do you believe what you believe? How can we come to the middle? How can we agree to disagree? You know, those are the things I care about. Um, but that doesn't mean I won't stop calling myself a conservative, you know? And you, you know, the Democrat party is
1: traditionally known as being more diverse, as you know. Um, And so you are, you know, what we might call a minority conservative. And so I'm curious, like, has that been an experience at all? Or is that something you think about a lot? Or is it just kind of like, not that big of a deal? You
0: know, I don't think about it very much. Um, Well, let me correct that. Let me say I have not typically thought about it very much. More recently, I am. uh, Because I'm also producing this new effort it's also a political action committee it's called catalyst and what we're trying to do is bring more diverse voices to the republican party particularly at the federal level mm-hmm. that's what we're focused on and and yes those people fall into buckets they fall into ethnic religious um racial buckets and we have to be honest about that we can't hide behind it anymore we don't have Anybody that looks like Tim Scott, Tim mm-hmm. Scott is sort of a standalone senator, right? Yeah. And what he looks like, where he comes from. And that is not okay, because we know that the Republican Party would be better served by the diversity of America if it reflected the diversity of America. We know the country would be better off with a more diverse Republican Party. Um, I just think that for for decades on end, Democrats have done a better job messaging to minorities. hmm and I know that sounds extremely elementary how I put it, um, but it is that elementary to me. We don't have to dig so deep. I grew up in southern West Virginia, not realizing my color. I was really? just American, like everybody else. I was born and raised in a town called Beckley, West Virginia, which is in the southern coalfields. And my dad ended up there in the you know late '70s uh, as as a doctor. And we just were like everybody else. I went to school with kids of coal miners. I went to school with kids of engineers. I went to school with kids of lawyers. I went to school with kids f- whose parents were from Pakistan, um, from from China, from the Middle East. Uh, you name it. I mean, the, the we where I grew up, my community in the 80s was such a melting pot. And when the mines started to shut down, that was really tough because people left uh, for economic opportunity elsewhere and so it started to look more homogenous now on the whole i'm not i'm not being naive i know that on the whole west virginia has always been quite homogenous yeah <laughs> I, I believe that what I grew up in was just like what I am raising my kids in now in Northern Virginia, right outside of DC, a very diverse place where all we celebrated was the American way, which was to embrace everybody as simply American, to not make an issue of who they were and where they came from. There were definitely questions like, you know, I remember being nine and sitting on a trampoline and this sweet girl who was my age jumped over and was like, how'd you get so tan? I just remember, you know, just sort of laughing and, and not really thinking much of it. It wasn't, it it was just a curious question. There would be curious questions about our faith. I was raised as a Jain and Jainism is very much uh, a smaller religion of the world. It's similar to Buddhism. I always say originated from South Asia mm-hmm. and our core philosophy is to live and let live. And, and we believe in a superior being, we believe in God. And so I believe that all people, whether they believe in God um, or believe, you know, they, they may not believe in God. We're all, you know, we're all here together. We're all equal. We're all created wonderfully on this earth. And I think that's why I sort of just believe that my upbringing was a really, really great, you know, it was just just a really great thing that made me feel like, you know, what, Everybody should have this. How can I help to preserve this for everybody in America? And that's what I I try to take at the core of everything I do. So I don't really present with my color. I don't usually present with like my experience or my ethnic background. Mm-hmm. I try to sort of minimize that actually. I try to find what I share in common with somebody versus what I what is dissimilar about us. And how and is it oh go ahead? Yeah, no, no, I think that's just that's just how I operate. I don't know if that's right or wrong. But then again, I don't think Really much of these kind of conversations that we're having about ethnicity and race in, in politics today, I don't think there is much that's right and wrong unless you're, you know, you're attacking somebody terribly. I think people have their experiences, where they come from and who they are, and we should embrace those things. Uh, growing up and even now, have you would you say you've experienced much racism? no i never really did in southern west virginia i I can't even say i did until i moved to washington dc in january 2006
1: what what (laughs) was was it it about
0: washington dc oh gosh well you know it's it it was more of a melting pot at that point than i was used to in west virginia because like i said sort of as i got to high school more people started to leave there were less uh people of various backgrounds moving to west virginia the state was actually seeing an exodus rather than you know people coming to settle so it was it was interesting when i got to dc it was just in incredibly diverse and and that was fine because we'd been visiting dc since i was a young girl uh that great privilege that was really that was really a wonderful thing my parents gave us the gift of travel me and my siblings and so when i came to dc and i made the decision to move here that january after having worked as a, a field reporter in southern west virginia for a few months i did that for like eight months after i graduated college that was really fun um i moved to dc And I was out and about and I was sort of meeting more people that were the kids of immigrants from India. And we all started to sort of flock to one another and sort of talk about our experiences growing up as the kids of immigrants. And, and, and it was kind of nice, because when you don't know anybody in a new city, it is kind of nice to find that common ground and find people embracing you for your background. Um, But we were I think out and about one night in DC and we were probably having a good time out dancing. And I remember one guy who sort of used a, uh, a derogatory term that started with sand and I said, what? And it took me a minute. He said, you know, you and your people, all you sand people. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he used the the N word and I, I was just extremely taken aback because nobody had ever, I'd never heard that word. And then I had to think about it. And then I was like, you know, if you're going to insult me, at least insult me properly. I'm not from the Middle East. I think that's what you're aiming at. I think you're (laughs) trying to say I'm from the Middle East and I'm from West Virginia. (laughs) I'm not really sure what you're saying. So, you know, uh, that was probably the first real instance of racism I've I've encountered in my life. And I realize I'm I'm so lucky to not have experienced more. I know there are people who got it far worse who have suffered violence. And I don't mean to diminish or discount any of that by saying my experience was just vastly different. Um, I just never, even to this day, I mean, I'm always shocked if I think there's something that's racist being said about me, Um, particularly online. I think that was hard for me in 2016 when I spoke out against the president. I got a lot of go back to your country. Uh, (laughs) People were calling me Muslim. I just, that was, that was actually really painful. That was very hard to see in in black and white. Was it
1: was it just um the cuz you were getting that I'm assuming from conservative people because they're mad that you were going against the president. Um Yeah, yeah. I mean, were you you were shocked by that and like and, and also how much do you think, you know, one of the issues that I still have and many people still have with President Trump is that he really hasn't ever denounced the white nationalism um, side of things. And he, you know, pretended he didn't really know who David Duke was. And, you know, then uh, Charlottesville and all of that stuff that happened. How much do you think that is going to be a contributing problem to, you know, minorities being interested in the Republican Party?
0: Oh, it's been huge. I think we would be We would be having a completely different conversation if the president had chosen to loudly denounce white nationalism and and the the horrific acts that took place in in Charlottesville and, and, and have taken place around the country, frankly. I mean there there have been smaller incidents. The president should have used his power, his leadership, that's that leadership to speak out about something that is just morally wrong. And and he should go back to the principles and the values and he should talk about that. He should talk about an America for everyone. And he's never done that he mm-hmm. wants to speak to this very small group that just loves and supports him he's he's a man who's obsessed with his image he's he just so badly wants to be loved it reminds me of somebody I went to high school with and I'm like chill you yeah. know yes Talk about like you know what's really important and people may love you people would come to you and give you that adoration that you very much seek and and desire um if you would be a real person sometimes and, and that not group up is
1: so friends. small. I mean, that is not a large group of people, you know, there yeah. are, that's a, a very extreme, very small group. And yet by refusing to truly denounce them, he's actually given them more platform, more power. Uh, you know, yeah. the press has latched onto it and it's really been a negative image for <laughs> the party, obviously. And uh, one of those just really frustrating things as someone that's sitting here on the sidelines and, For sure. Wanting the best
0: for, you know, the policies that I believe in. Well, I have an interesting thing that happened to me a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sunday before last, I was on Reverend Al Sharpton's show on MSNBC, uh, and he asked me to, you know, sort of comment on the exchange between Biden and Harris. So Kamala Harris talked yeah. about busing and Joe Biden. In my opinion, I I've watched that clip over and over. I was watching the night of the debate. I didn't think it was a sensational moment. I think she spoke her truth. She spoke about a very authentic experience, something that had happened to her that really hurt. You know, and and I I did mention that I I thought when I was very young that there might have been a family or two that might have not wanted their kids to play with me and my brother uh, because we were different. But it never, you know, something was going on in West Virginia at that time. Everybody was just so nice, you know, (laughs) you got lucky. Yeah. You know, and so nobody was ever like, you're not playing with my kids. Your kids aren't playing with mine because y'all are different. You know, I, I sort of felt it. It was a very, very small thing. But what she described was something very big, right? This, this really big experience. Um, and I don't, I don't think we should discount that at all. She lived in a different part of the country in a different era in a different time. So I, I really appreciated that she shared something so personal because as, as somebody who's been a political consultant, I think that's the number one thing candidates should do is be authentic and speak their truth. Because when it comes from the heart, there's just no replication. But the way the media, the mainstream media ran with it, they were like, Kamala has arrived. She is everything. She bested Joe Biden. And me and my husband, who happens to have a similar background as me. We both are sitting there and, and I'm always interested in going back and forth with him because we don't always agree. I was like, look, do you, and and he's a physician, he's nowhere near politics, but he says to me, he's like, I didn't think it was that big of a moment. Did you? And I'm like, Nope, just saw him defending himself. Mm -hmm. And I said on Reverend Sharpton's show, I was like, what more do you want an older white male to do? What do you want him to do? He spoke about his record. He spoke about how he has been a champion for civil rights, which a lot of his record reflects that. I mean, why are you coming at somebody that would be an ally, you know, that, that shouldn't be attacked like that? I felt like she saw an opportunity and maybe rightfully so, because it is a game. Politics is a game at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. She used that opportunity. She seized it to sort of uh, pinpoint as to why she might be a better, you know, nominee, but I also felt very badly for him because what more was he to do in that moment? He is his color. He is who he is. You know, he's – he's. I just found it so hard. And yeah. I think when, when you vilify, you know, people who are not people of color. Just for being I mean, white. Yes. This is – there's something lost. So I'm not yeah. trying to at all – it, it, you know give any kind of cover to a white supremacist or somebody <laughs> yeah. that is you know anything like that i mean that is the farthest thing i would do i've been accused of that on twitter as well but um you know i'm trying to say that where do we lose our humanity where do we lose our understanding with people because we can't change the color of our skin that's something we just cannot change so when somebody stands up and does something like joe biden has i think he has really tried to do as much good in his life as possible why mm. are we vilifying him yeah but you you know, she had a fair point, you know, and she spoke about something. And I liked the exchange. I just didn't think it was as, um, you know, big as the, the mainstream media made it out to be. I thought it was actually rather unfair for yeah. them to say she arrived in that moment, <laughs> which was a, a sort of thing that happens to us females quite a bit. Oh, yeah. There is well, more sexism than racism. <laughs> she,
1: she did have a good night. We'll, we'll give her that one.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So
1: I want to ask you a couple more things. I know, like, we could probably talk for hours, <laughs> I feel <All> like <laughs> um, but but two things one, um, you are so- somewhat of a serial entrepreneur um, you 've got your hands in a million things, and I feel like we have a similar yeah. vibe going on because I um, yeah. also get really excited about you know being involved and like how we can make things happen and ideas and other women and just I have a tendency to want to do everything and I feel like you may be similar to that. Oh yeah, um, I am. I so, suffer from that. <laughs> yeah, so it's like how do you choose and how do you prioritize your life cuz you've got kids, you've got your husband. Um how does that kind of priority making look like for your life on a day-to-day basis?
0: It's difficult, as I'm sure you'll agree. You know, this is—we are in the thick of it with very young kids, and I have older women who tell me that all the time. You are in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. Calm down. <laughs> you know? Yes, I know, and, and, I know. Same here. You know, the whole taking a little grace with ourselves. <laughs> I don't—I mm-hmm. don't know that I've done that until recently. I—I've had a really hard time forgiving myself for what I'm not able to achieve, and yeah. I think it's because I've spent the large part of my life recognizing that I'm somebody that a lot has been given to a lot. And, and I felt like it's my responsibility to go out there and, and do even more. And so I think I've always been the sort of high-functioning Type A individual that just is just dying to get things done. Um, but there are real limitations every day, like you said, and then children being the most of them. And I'm I'm in this moment right now where every day comes hard decisions. You know, even even a conversation like this, there's a trade-off, right? I chose not to do this today, so I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the children have to come first because if I really boil down to what's important to me in life, it's to be somebody that produces two very, um, giving individuals, people who want to contribute to society because they've been given a lot at home. So they want to go out and do good. And I, I want to raise those kind of children so badly. That is like the core of everything I'm doing right now. I worry about being a good mother every day. Am I doing enough for the children? Have I, have I sort of equipped them with everything they need? And, and so that taking a little grace for myself is like something I say, but I don't do very often, um, had to become a better planner and I think this is why women who are mothers uh, particularly in addition I mean I think all women are work, are going to be tremendous public servants for the most part. I think there are a number of women that bring sort of just uh, the background, having been born and raised a woman in the United States, to public service. I think it sort of betters our society to have those women at the table. But mm-hmm. mothers, particularly mothers, because we are used to having to compromise. And, we, and you'll hear this everywhere. Women who have children... Ha- understand that we have to compromise, we have to go along to get along. And becoming people who prioritize and decision-make in a very different way, that's something that could serve our society far better if we are, again, in decision-making capacities and leadership positions. So Mm I I really try to think about that too. I'm like, am I sort of living out what I'm talking about? Am I planning today in a way that's responsible? Have I made sure that I've done everything today to the best of my ability? That is so difficult. And so the sort of dream list, this wish list, I used to have, and 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 like you said, we, you and I, sort of suffer from this every every day. Like these many ideas, this wanting to go and get it all. Um, I think women like us, you know, we have to sit down and take a deep breath because the children, again, they they. Should Show up when when there's not great timing, right? Mm-hmm. The, their timing is kind of awful. It's like I'll be right in the middle of needing to get get ready and 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 get out the door, and and my little one has an awful cough, you know. And and in that moment, I have to cancel an interview on a major national television network, or yeah. sometimes international, and that that hurts my ego. But when I realize it's my ego that I'm hurting and, and I'm doing something better for my child, that's when I sort of take a deep breath and I'm like, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Cause one day they're going to grow up and they're going to leave home and they're going to walk away with only the time they've spent with us in our home. So I have to maximize this time. So what of my wish list is so important that I need to go get that in addition to balancing what I owe at home. And it is so Tough. Believe me, it's an everyday struggle that I am I am copying out over here. People look at my social media. Sometimes I have friends say, Oh, everything looks great. Wow. You know, everything looks awesome. But like social media lies. It is a <laughs> snapshot <laughs> totally. of just my good moments in life. Life is hard no matter who you are, where you are, across the country. And I think once we sort of take a little grace with ourselves and with other people, um, we are just gonna be better women to each other. And 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 I frankly think we can go get our goals um, together. We can achieve our goals faster and better if we sort of support one another, particularly young moms.
1: I love when you said uh, uh, forgiving myself for what I can't achieve. And because I just – I relate so much to that because – you know i don't know if it's the personality thing but it, it is a constant needing to forgive yourself for that very thing what you can't achieve you, can't, you cannot do it all i mean that yeah. you know that that phrase that we hear over and over debated again and again um, about women and moms um, i would love to get an idea of what your daily like life is like so do <laughs> your kids go to daycare how what time do you get up in the morning i'm always so curious what people's day to day looks like
0: Sure, sure. No, I'm I'm happy to share that because I actually find myself looking at um looking online sometimes, like when I'm up late at night, looking for what, you know, CEOs do or mm-hmm. what other people are maybe in the public in the limelight do. I, I love to hear that as well. I'm always thinking about that because we can always tweak our days to be better, right? Right. And I, I think learning from other people and what they do, what works best for them and trying it for ourselves, hey, there's like nothing better. So um, I mean, especially if you have the luxury of being able to try new things and I do have that luxury. So at this point in my life, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much at home most days. And, and that's sort of hard for people to understand because what I'm doing with media is so uncertain that I actually in January of this year made, made a very big promise to myself is to stop prioritizing work that did not pay. Mm. And I, I realized that I could do a lot of work from home that paid. But I would have to really change how I did my day. And so I live about um, 12 miles outside of D.C. And I'm fortunate in that I have a rental property in D.C. that I, I keep and is not being rented right now. So I can take my kids there on the weekends. At home in my my home in Virginia, I have a at-home person um, who comes from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m that's huge. And so that's a big part of why I'm able to do the work I do. It's because I have somebody at home who is taking care of my one-year-old. And then my older one, who's three and a half, she was at home until January of this year. Um, And then we realized she really needed more. So she is in a daycare and um, the daycare is more of a preschool situation. And now it's a summer camp. Um, But I have the flexibility to keep her there at six if I ever need. My husband's uh, job as a physician is extremely complicating to our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I should add that, um, because he is, um, He's on call, and he's in a private practice situation, and he's in an out-of-network pr- private practice, which means that he is essentially uh, delivering care that is almost concierge medicine. Mm-hmm. So he's always kind of at the beck and call of his patients, and he loves that. And frankly, um, it's something he's he's wanted to always do. And so because of that, my career has taken a little bit of a, a backseat. And so on my roster, I only have four clients right now, and that is um, a huge disappointment to me sometimes because I realized at the height of my political consulting career, I had 12 candidates. I had 12 different candidates across the country that I was advising. I was either speech writing for, or I was doing their comms, or I was their Washington person. Um, it was just exhilarating to be in the thick of political consulting. And then in 2016, when my little one was born, um, she was I was at home with her for six months and not working and um, realizing that I I was having some issues with myself. I my self-image was sort of, um, going downhill, I, I recognized some things in myself that were just not healthy. And I realized that work was really important to me. So, around the seven month mark, I met Evan McMullen by chance as I was getting ready to go on the O'Reilly Factor. It was the day he announced his presidential candidacy. And he said, I'd love to have the help of somebody like you in any capacity. I said, Well, what do you need? And the next thing I know, I become his spokeswoman and I'm sort of one of his top strategists in the inner circle. And I didn't realize. What what the trade-off would be, well, next thing you know, I'm in Utah for like two months. Oh, man. I was supposed to be out for two weeks. And so my parents stepped in. My mother found the, the woman who is our stay-at-home nanny. She's been with us since that time, since August of 2016. And she's grown with our family. I'm very blessed to have her. But to afford her, I realized I was going to need to work after the McMullen campaign was over. Mm-hmm. So. I realize work makes me a happier, more centered individual, and at this point in my life, I've found a way to do work from home and contribute to media in a way that doesn't bring in the massive dollars I once imagined, but it is enough for me to feel like I'm contributing to my home and to my family and and getting what I need out of it. And I'm just, I'm very blessed to have it every day be super flexible. So I can go into the city when I need to um, for press hits. Um, I choose to be there, particularly at my my sort of remote office, only two days a week. And I structure those days very tightly. I make sure that I'm getting everything I possibly need done in D.C. those days. There was an era where I was going and having lunches and then coming back to Virginia. I realized, no, that's killing my time. I'm Mm -hmm. zapping my productivity by being in the car. So I am at home more, and it has been one of the best tweaks I've made to my schedule. So it's, again, a very long-winded answer, but to tell everybody that really my situation is so different, it's so unique in its own way, and I hope people aren't judging me but I also don't judge anybody else you know that has a different situation because we all are doing whatever we feel is best as young mothers you're constantly tweaking you're constantly trying to make the best of what's given to you and to me in order to afford stay at home help in the daycare I've decided I'm gonna keep plugging along and working from home something I never thought I'd say
1: And you like and you love it. I mean, you love your work. I really do.
0: I really do. I love writing. It's at the core of everything I'm doing right now. Um, You know, and and a lot of the work I get to do is on the phone. So I'm blessed. You know, I I know there's going to come a day where this won't work anymore. I'm scared of that day. Super scared. Um, but I also know that every situation that I'm being given, it's because I, I've been afforded some very, very real luxuries. I need to make the most of them.
1: So when it comes to political consulting, I don't think people necessarily always know what that means. You mentioned a couple things, speech yeah. writing, um, communications. What are some of the tasks that you perform as a political consultant?
0: So for me, I've chosen largely to stay in the strategic communication space. And, mm-hmm. and I did start out in 2011 after I left Capitol Hill, speech writing and doing all comms for candidates. So I would do everything from maintaining their website um, with a small team I'd assemble and developing it from start to finish, maintaining it, uh, writing content. Content creation is really one of the biggest things I do. Uh, right now, the, the four clients I have, um, I am largely speech writing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been really fun because candidates tend to want speeches forever. Everything. <laughs> some yeah. of them, at least. Um, and I work with a lot of first-timers, and and I've I've dropped my rates drastically for some women that I know are sort of have these nascent campaigns that haven't that are, are largely self, self-funded right now or haven't really brought in the money that they hope to bring yet. Uh, because I believe that we need more women. So a part of how I'm working with these candidates is to say, hey, you know, what I'm going to drop my usual rates, um, but you have a a couple companies in which I'm helping their public affairs effort. So that just means making sure they're getting legislative briefs, stuff that's happening on Capitol Hill, making sure they're staying abreast of what, what pertains to their industry, um, putting together talking points for when a principal or a candidate needs to appear on on media. I'm doing all that from behind the scenes. And that strategic communications work is is I thought when I first started this business, to be very honest, I thought it was very just easy stuff. I thought, okay, this is low-hanging fruit. It's it's not going to cost very much. It won't take much of my time. I realize now and I'm I'm now in my eighth year of having my own company that all this is very difficult. And to be a businesswoman, you've got to make sure everybody is getting paid and then you take home something. Mm -hmm. So all the subcontractors that work with me to make sure like websites are going, you know, are are maintained and up to date, um, those people need to be paid what they're due and and really keeping up on the trends, phone banking to, you know, signature collection, that's stuff that I've advised on in the past and I've I've coordinated those efforts as well because I'm not above any of it. When campaigns need something, they need something (laughs) and and if there isn't anybody else to handle it on deck, you're going to find a way to service that person and their campaigns. So, um, so that's kind of the mentality I've taken to my work and that's really what I've done. I've been very fortunate to really be, be sort of hyper-focused on, on the issue areas. Um, and, and, and speaking of issue areas, yes, I've built out plenty of issue pages for candidates. So I really draw on the the wealth of my experience on Capitol Hill as a, as an LA, um, on, on advising candidates on, on various issues, how to message about immigration, um, how to message about, you know, anything related to foreign policy in particular. I love that stuff. Um, but also our domestic issues, how to talk about energy and the environment, things like that. This is all stuff I really love, and it all falls under the purview of political consulting. Well, we
1: know that there are plenty of politicians out there that need messaging help, so <laughs> I'm sure you're doing a great service for all of us with with Thank all of you. your work. And I, I'm really intrigued by it. And actually, I might I might ask you a few more questions offline on that because I uh, am <laughs> doing some consulting no work myself right now. That I but I'm kind of new to the game, so um, yeah. All right. Well, we we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to ask you a few last kind of more fun questions. Um (laughs) well actually this isn't quite as fun so much as inspirational, but um when you think of your kids, like what
0: is a message that you
1: want to pass down to them?
0: Oh man, that's a tough one because there's so many, right? Yeah, (laughs) I I know. It's like very big. It's very big, but I'm such a mom in that I'm like, what do I want to say today? (laughs) What do I want to say? One out of many things. You know, I, I really, I really wanted, actually, this is gonna, this is gonna wrap into a title of a book I wanted to share. I wanted to say love your enemies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a book of uh, Arthur Brooks, uh, the former AEI I need precedent. to read that.
1: It's on my list.
0: It is so good. I'm in the middle of reading it now, but I was fortunate to be a part of AEI's leadership network in the fall of last year. And that's a very interesting network. So I welcome anybody who is at all interested in it to reach out to me over email and happy to share more with you, of course, when we're offline so you can post more about it. That that network really um, acquainted me with, with AEI's tremendous work, all the work that their scholars are doing. But Arthur Brooks is just such a remarkable individual, mm-hmm. beyond remarkable. He's Just something to me, he's an enigma wrapped in a a mystery. (laughs) He's just somebody who is. He's just, I want to get the core of who he is, but he, he, he's, it seems like his core is very simple. He gets to the issue of contempt and he talks about love and he studied with the Dalai Lama. He's been with the Dalai Lama, who he considers a friend, and he's brought. These very, very great thoughts, He's wrapped them all together in this book, which I said I'm in the middle of reading right now, but the the title is just so poignant and it's Love Your Enemies. And I want to tell my children that because anytime you see somebody, anytime you have this interaction with somebody that sort of sparks this hate or contempt in you, turn it into love instead and see how that goes. And I think it's just such a powerful message that instead of hating our enemies, why don't we just approach them with love? Why don't we view them with love? Why don't we approach our interactions with them with love? And I think that's just so, so important that our children know that because we have so much hate in the world and it's, we just shouldn't, we just, there's no need for it.
1: Yeah. I think that's great advice. Um, what is a book that you've read recently or a book that you'd recommend, which you just said one, but yeah. if you have any others, <laughs> be that one. it yeah, have
0: to be Arthur's book because it's so good. It just feels like this moment. Sometimes, you know, a lot of people are on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I don't have a personal page, but I have a personal Twitter and personal Instagram as my husband reminds me. He's like, so that's no better. <laughs> <laughs> you can act like you're, you know, floating in the clouds, not having a personal Facebook page. I haven't had since like 2011. I, uh, I, I'm really proud of that because I, I do see a lot of fighting on Facebook, but I, yeah. I see it's happening on Instagram now and it's certainly a home on Twitter. It's just awful. How yeah. people come for one another, and I just think this book is so important, and I really, I really want people to think about it. But um, on the same plane, I should, I should mention that um, Arthur wrote the Conservative Heart as well, and and the and the sort of like sub subline there is how to build a fairer, happier, and more prosperous America, and I just think. You know, reading stuff that isn't natural to us. So if there's somebody out there listening is like sort of like how that title just gets them like, I'm not a conservative. We'll read it see what it's about. You know, mm-hmm. on my bookshelf, I have a bunch of books that I may not agree with uh, You know, the contents of, you know, how they're written, what, what, you know, even the author, we may not agree on anything, but it's so important to listen to other viewpoints. How do you do
1: that? That's the regular practice for you?
0: I, I do. I do try to do that because growing up again, I, I, I know I've made this entire conversation about my family, but it was just so big for me. Yeah, no, you know, that's to, who to, you are. It's just who I am. In that, I I know I'm an other now, but I didn't grow up thinking I was another. It mm. was though a part of of my experience. So I read books that were about people that were nothing like me. I remember reading this old novel my dad had on a shelf. He used to have so many books, and he still does, and I'm, I'm, I'm likely inheriting the most of them if I can rip them out of my siblings' hands. <laughs> but um, it was called *The Immigrants*, and it was about an, uh, it, it was about an Italian family that settled in San Francisco. I read it when I was like 11. And it was just a very advanced novel, but I remember loving it. And it was just so different because it was about people that were nothing like me in another part of the country, that were from another background and um ethnically. And I, I just thought that was so cool. So I've always read about um things that are that are not like me, that that are sort of different from me. If I if I come across titles, whether they be fiction or nonfiction, that seem too similar to like who I am, I don't pick them up. Because they just kind of like, well, why would I? And people say, oh, read more South Asian authors. I'm just sort of like, yeah, I've read a few. Salman Rushdie. I just recently read this incredible novel when I was vacationing in February um, called Maximum City, which is about the city of Bombay, written by a guy named Suketu Mehta. And that was incredible. But I I don't find the love I find in these reads as much as I do when they're written by people who are just nothing like me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you have any uh, podcasts? Do you like to listen to podcasts? I wish I did. Yeah, you're not <laughs> a podcast. You're like, no, I don't have time.
0: I, yeah, you know, with all this Twitter madness and, and the, the hard copies on my bookshelves, um, recently I got I, I, I built a bookshelf in my, my home office and it just has brought me so much joy. I'm oh, staring yeah. at it right now. I love it's like, my bookshelf. Yes, it is just so it makes my heart like happy. I don't know what it is to stare at all these hard copies I have. I don't even own a Kindle. I probably would read no, more if I, I did. No, I
1: did have a Kindle and I it broke and I was like, oh, you know no. what? I hate this thing. I'm not getting another one. I pr- I can't even read books on it at all. So yeah. I'm with you. I don't mm-hmm. know
0: if it's something about our generation because I know you and I are the same age, which you know something that just comes with touching a book you know, it's mm-hmm. just really, really, I don't know. I just, I, I need to touch it. I need to sort of. the Yeah. And, and I'm a big note
1: taker too. Like, especially if yeah. I'm writing nonfiction, I like to
0: underline and like ask questions and come back later and stuff like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the joy of reading. And so I'm, I'm really lucky. I, I got to have this bookshelf at home.
1: All right. If you could have dinner or drinks with any celebrity, who would it be and why?
0: Hmm. I think it would be Condoleezza Rice. I I realize I'm giving you like some real cliche. No,
1: that's great. I mean, she would be on my short list for sure. What, why, why Condoleezza?
0: Recently, she's number one for me because she did an interview. What was it last month? I think. And it was, it was an incredible interview. I, I just, I don't even know what to say about it in which she tackled this the question of race. If if somebody can just pull up that that clip on Twitter or wherever Yeah, it is I'll online, link that in the notes. It is just so wow. Like how she handled this this question that was about race. She just she's elegant, she's eloquent, she's she's everything I just want to be. <laughs> 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 I just I just think the world of her. I think she's just a woman who has has maintained incredible privacy and um you know, if you very few people have, you know, issue with her leadership, how she she acted as a leader back then, um, she's not controversial. I think that's what it is about her. I, I envy that I find her to be especially in 2016 when I sort of became this controversial figure. Um, I became a public figure in in, in my 2016 delegate issue mm-hmm. uh, when I spoke out against President Trump um, when he was a candidate. I didn't ask for that. Right. But she's somebody who, who entered into public life and still maintained that, that privacy and that sort of reverence from, from many people that I think she sort of, she commands a respect. And I, I love that. I just think it's incredible. So I don't, I don't think it's even that she's a woman or that she's a woman of color or anything that really draws me to her. I'm just, that might be sort of the underlying thing there, but overall, I'm taken by her. I just think she's an incredibly strong woman. I want to get to the core of like who she is. You know, how did she become this way? Because it's something I just, I really want to be as I grow older.
1: Yeah, I think that would be a pretty fascinating dinner to have. So good answer. All right, Rena. Well, thank you so much for (laughs) spending this hour with me, just giving me all of this great feedback and just information about your career and your life. I think it's really inspiring and appreciate you spending the time with me.
0: Thank you, Erica. It was such a pleasure to be able to share so much from my background in my life. I thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: Well, thanks for listening to that conversation with Rena today. I hope you guys were inspired by what she had to say. I know some of us moms out there, it's always so great to just hear how other mom, working moms are doing it. Hey, if you've been listening to the show, please consider leaving me a rating and review on iTunes. If you have suggestions for guests, shoot me an email tweet me, whatever. I love to hear the the names of people that you'd be interested in hearing from and consider sharing the episode if you enjoyed it. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next Tuesday.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture, to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.